You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK Services. David, I trust you are well. Uh, I am well, thanks, Giles. And I trust all our listeners are well. And, you know, a few um, green shoots have sort of emerging through the clouds of winter. Well, they are indeed amidst this energy crisis and maybe because of this energy crisis, or at least partly, we now have what seems to be agreement um, to legislate the 43% um, emissions reduction target by 2030. I mean, I think everyone understands that it doesn't quite meet the climate science, but there's many people who think it's very important to have it legislated, a clear signal to the market to do the right thing. Um, the coalition is still opposing it and starting to dream up sort of... Um, new plans for investigations into nuclear, which I think just probably shows just how far away from the um, whole conversation they are. But um, David, before we get into our interview today, I mean, what do you think this means, having a legislated target? I just think it's a sign of of progress. You know, we've gone from uh, Angus Taylor putting sand in the gears every, every day and making life hard for just about everyone Although I will say he did put the offshore wind legislation in place because it looked like oil and gas, I suppose, more than more than renewables. Uh, we've gone from that situation to having um, uh, a federal government that, um, you know, uh, has a strong consensus majority for doing lots on climate change. Let's be honest, it's not just uh, the 43% target, which is the kind of labour minimum, but... Uh, uh, the crossbench uh, basically are strongly in favour of doing more. The Senate, on balance, would be in favour of stronger targets. I'm pretty sure if if they were given a chance, and so and so and business uh, has been all the business groups, the Chamber of Commerce, um, uh, have all said that they want this target in legislation. It gives them the confidence to do something. I don't exactly know what, but uh, there we are. There we are. Well, it's interesting that um, despite all these green shoots, as you call them at the start of this podcast, um, there are still concern amongst investors because it's not just having legislated targets that matter. It's also the rules and the regulations. And on this very matter earlier today or earlier this evening, in fact, while David was hosting an energy um, seminar in Sydney, I was talking to Simon Corbell, the former ACT energy minister and currently the chief executive of the Clean Energy Investors Group. And here's the interview. Welcome back to the Energy Insiders podcast. Thanks for having me, Giles. The Labor government has just just struck an agreement with the Greens to legislate a 43% target and indeed a net zero by 2050 target. Um, Their 43% target assumes 82% renewables by 2030. Um, Despite all this, your latest survey from the Clean Energy Investment Group is finding that investors still not feeling very comfortable about the investment environment in Australia. Why not? Yeah, well, I think it's a tale in two parts, Giles. I think the headline direction of travel is overwhelmingly positive. That is, we've got a new federal government with a very clear objective around driving a, you know, a much larger level of investment in the renewable energy sector. 
and a clear commitment to bring Australia back to the pack when it comes to our emissions reduction objectives. So our survey actually finds that this is what this is one of the occasions that's seen the largest level of positive response from our investor members that you know, the election of the new Labor government with the policies that it's stated and which it is quickly implementing has improved investor sentiment at the headline level. But as always, the devil is in the detail. And so issues such as grid access, congestion management, uh, issues such as uh, still an unrealistic level of scenario planning around coal closure and complex and lengthy transmission planning and connection processes are all very significant issues for investors. And it just really highlights how much work the new federal government has to repair investor confidence after having been degraded by so many years of policy uncertainty and associated market risk. But we seem to be going through a process now where we've got a review of the um, energy markets um, rules by the Energy Security Board, some proposals coming through. Um, what is worrying you? Because you're, you're painting quite a bleak picture um, in the report that you're releasing today. Well, we think really clearly that there is a, a whole body of work that needs to be done around the capacity of the market institutions to deliver on the Labor government's agenda. So whether that's the capacity of the regulatory environment to approve transmission, augmentation and development in a timely way, um, there's a lot of work to be done on that and the answers are not yet clear in terms of where the market bodies uh, are looking in relation to those matters. Um, and on issues like congestion management, uh, we still see uh, quite a heavy reliance of thinking um, that assumes uh, a significant level of, of coal and other forms of thermal generation staying in the system for a long period of time when that is not the scenario that we should actually be planning for. So Sorry to interrupt, Simon, but, but I'm a bit curious about that because the AEMO ISP, the steps change scenario, makes it quite clear what they think is going to happen with um, brown coal generation and black coal generation. And, um, you know, mm. that's endorsed by the majority of the things. So, so who is resisting these scenarios and, and why? Well, let, let me give an example. So the ESB in its most recent consultation in relation to the design of the proposed capacity market, uh, released uh, some detail in terms of case studies around which generators would benefit from a capacity market. And it looked at around 30 gigawatts of capacity being auctioned under the proposed model and all bar about two gigawatts of capacity um, went to incumbent thermal generation. Uh, and only a very small amount went to new investment, that is new projects. Uh, zero emissions generation and storage. So that really highlights that we've got the trajectory of the of the federal government pointing in one direction, but we've still got a mindset amongst some of our regulators that assumes that coal stays in the system and benefits from particular arrangements under even proposed market rules, let alone existing ones. So I think that is that is the type that's an example of the type of disconnect we're seeing and our investor members are seeing.
Is, is this a problem then with the nature of the institutions and the structure of them? It's sort of pretty confusing. You've got the AEMC, you've got the AAR, you've got the AEMA, you've got the ESB that lies over the top of them, or is it the actual people involved? I think it's fundamentally a challenge around the mandate that these entities have and the level of political uh, oversight that exists in relation to the way they, they execute their mandates, let alone what their mandates say. So, for example, we still have no clear emissions reduction objective in the NEM. Um, we do not have an environmental objective that has to be had regard to in the design of some of these market mechanisms. And if we did have that, uh, I think we would see um, a significant shift in relation to the design of some of these specific market uh, operational issues, whether it's capacity market whether that's regard to how congestion is managed in a, in a you know, 83% plus VRE world, um, those types of scenarios would have to be properly taken into account by the market bodies when you consider, uh, sorry, when they consider how the rules operate. And that's something that's just badly, badly missing in the, yeah. in the debate at the moment. Well, I think that's I, I think that's been sort of recognised for quite a while. There's sort of the uh, that sudden removal of the uh, environmental objective from the national energy objective um, way back more, more than 20 years ago was um, you know it's, it's been largely responsible for some of the atrocious decisions mm. or frustrating decisions that's been made. Uh, your mm. group has been actually lobbying quite hard amongst state manage, in, in state and federal energy ministers about putting environment back into the national energy um, electricity objective. Um, what's been the response, and and, and how, can this be done? Yes, so we have been lobbying quite hard. We've, we've made representations to all of the state governments and the federal government, both at a departmental and a, a ministerial level. Uh, I've been very, very heartened uh, by the level of um, encouragement we've had in response to our representations. Uh, and I am optimistic uh, that we will actually see action by ministers on this point um, because it, it dictates the way some of these some of these mechanisms are designed moving forward. So again, you look at the capacity market. Um, if you have an environmental objective, that's going to rule out uh, the application of it in for certain types of generation, at least over a over a medium term, if not over a short term. And that is, I think, critically important because we want these mechanisms, whether it's capacity market, whether it's congestion management designed to incentivize new investment because, you know, as, as the Federal Energy Minister has said, we need more investment, we need a lot of it and we need it quickly. And the market rules uh, and the assumptions that sit behind the design of those market rules will be key to making that happen or not. So having that environmental objective back in the, the NEM architecture would be a, a critical step forward, something we've been advocating since last year. And uh, I'm very encouraged that we will we will see action on that. Well, how quickly do we, can we see action? And how quickly, if, if, if say, I might, my understanding is there's a, another energy ministers meeting um, this month, I think it might even be next week. Um, will it come before them then? And if it is, how quickly can actually be implemented? And what is that process? Well, it's important to remember that um, the ACT government actually has been leading some work on behalf of energy ministers following their decision to look at the idea of an emissions reduction objective or an environmental objective in the NEO following the ministerial council meeting last December. 
it's not something that was widely advertised, but that work has been quietly underway. And uh, I'm now, I think, at the point uh, of hoping that we could see something as soon as, as when energy ministers next meet. But let's cross fingers and then see what happens. And if they do, um, if it is presented towards them, I mean, how quickly can this be done? Um, is it, um, can, can it be sort of, um, is there a vote? Is there, does it go through the South Australian Parliament? Um, what, what's the process? Yeah, it will need to go through uh, Parliament, um, all of the state parliaments, um, with the with the reference legislation being led by by South Australia, as is always the case when it comes to the uh, the NEM, the governing legislation for the NEM. Uh, so let's let's hope that ministers agree to it being a priority and moving forward quickly. But the very fact that they've indicated that they want it. Uh, means that effectively the market bodies have to take that into account from from that point forward because it's a it's a decision of ministers. So let's hope it is something that is considered when they next meet, and let's hope that it is something that is subsequently uh, pushed through those those formal processes. Because the urgency is quite important. Because you're saying the ESB is currently considering, um, you know, quite significant reforms to the market but without an environmental objective it really can't <laughs> act in the way it should be acting no i mean we talk about post 2025 nem design um as though it's something that's meant to you know um happen um uh, over the next you know five to eight years the reality is that the decisions we take in the next couple of months will dictate what post-NEM 2025 design looks like. And at the moment, we're making those decisions without thinking about that emissions reduction objective. So the sooner ministers say that the emissions reduction objective is part of the broader decision-making that not only the rule maker has to take into account and the ESB as a whole has to take into account, but also what the, the price regulator has to take into account in determining the relative cost benefit of transmission upgrades. And yes. I think this is where this is where it's actually extremely material because if we see uh, an emissions reduction objective having to be taken account of by the Australian Energy Regulator when it looks at the cost benefit of transmission infrastructure, that's going to greatly improve the prospects of Labor being able to realise its objectives under the rewiring the nation corporation policy and the $20 billion worth of projects they want to finance through that new vehicle. Yeah. Well, we've talked previously about um, one of the recent um, AEA rulings, and this is about the sort of the replacement of diesel plants in, in Broken Hill um, mm. or, or, or choosing a new sort of storage uh, technology. Now, I actually don't actually think that there's anyone within the AEA that truly believes that diesel generators are replacing them are a really good thing to do, but they found themselves obliged almost to sort of say that that's the preferred outcome because that's what the rules force them to conclude without an environmental objective. So um, Yeah, and I think to be fair, you know, that you know, the people who are leading the, the ESB and the AMC do recognise that the, the equation would be different mm. if that, if that uh, emissions issue was, was properly in scope in terms of the formal mandate. Um, and I, I think they would, they would seize that opportunity. So, you know, the sooner it's there, the sooner we get more sensible results that align the design of the electricity market with the federal government's objectives around emissions reduction and getting those two things aligned will certainly assist in realising the level of investment that's needed because our members say um, 
align your market design with your emissions reduction objective. Get that right and investment becomes uh, a much easier proposition and some of those risks start to certainly start to scale down. It's probably a good point here, um, Simon, to actually remind us who are your members? So our members are, are 19 investor businesses across the NEM. Collectively, they hold about 50% of all generation assets currently operation in, in the NEM. That's around 70 power stations worth about a total of 24 billion. And amongst our members, Snowy Hydro, Tilt Renewables, uh, Macquarie Bank, uh, WinLab, NeoN, Canadian Solar, RWE Renewables, uh, and many others. So we're delighted with the, the growth we've seen in our members and the focus we've been able to bring in terms of an investor voice for them. Hmm. Um, we'll come back in a minute and talk about some of the um, exact policy issues, but we'll just take a break and hear from our sponsor now. JetCharge is the largest EV charging infrastructure company in Australia. Operating nationwide, JetCharge has spent the last decade providing hassle-free EV charging services to thousands of businesses and EV drivers. JetCharge also specialises in helping maximise your use of renewable energy and are the leaders in vehicle-to-grid integrated solutions. From home charger installations to the largest EV charging projects in Australia, JetCharge is paving the way for an electric future together. We're back talking to Simon Corbell, um, the head of the Clean Energy Investment Group. Um, Simon, just going into the, some of the policy things that actually concern you most, we'll get to the capacity markets in a minute, but locational pricing seems to be something that comes up sort of repeatedly from your membership and indeed um, other people in the industry. Why is it such a problem? And, and perhaps you might need to explain exactly what it is. Well, locational marginal pricing is basically the development of multiple pricing nodes across the NEM. Um, many more than the, the current uh, five that we have across the NEM regions at the moment. Um, and it's designed to bring that, lo that, that local price and that level of granularity of price uh, into uh, the, the way that uh, projects dispatch in the market and which, which is the reference price for, for the purposes of that dispatch. Now, this, this model uh, assumes that uh, price is the best way of, of driving um, a longer-term locational signal, investment signal. But we know that that is not uh, the mechanism that is of greatest concern to investors. What our investor members say uh, is that the issue of greatest concern is understanding what revenues and revenue certainty looks like, not over a five-minute dispatch interval, but over a 15 to 20 year life of a project. So our members, uh, and indeed the industry more broadly, have said, look, this focus on dispatch efficiency is overstated. Uh, and the key issue is congestion. The key issue is managing congestion. The key issue is improving revenues, predictability for projects. And if we get that right, uh, then investors can invest with a much higher level of confidence than they can at the moment. Because we know at the moment you can make the investment decision on a project in a part of the grid that's currently unconstrained, build your project, and a year later or 18 months later, another business builds another project two kilometres down the line from you and all of a sudden you're curtailed. 
all of a sudden your revenues take a hit because you just can't get your product to market in the way that you anticipated. And there's no way of ameliorating that. There's no way of an, even anticipating that. Uh, and so this is why we have proposed an alternative model that focuses on uh, ensuring that once you're connected, your level of curtailment is, is fixed and you know in advance what it's going to look like when you make an investment decision, as well as other projects knowing what that looks like when they make their investment decision. And we think that's a much greater level of certainty and a greater level of coordination around transmission and generation investment, which we need as we head to 100% VRE future. Yeah. Um, that sounds pretty similar to what New South Wales is proposing in its infrastructure roadmap. And of course, if you think about New South Wales infrastructure roadmap, its auctions are going to start later on this year for what's called LTESs, which is essentially an underwriting agreement for um, new wind, solar mm. and storage, plus access rights, for part of the network, which appears to address some of the problems that you're concerned about. And of course, let's not forget that this is actually designed for what's going to be probably the most dramatic transformation from coal to renewables in the country's biggest grid and possibly the shortest time. Do you think that New South Wales has kind of got it right? I think they have, except that it only applies, obviously, within their res development framework and it don't, those, those firm physical access rights only operate in the context of within the res itself. And there's still this broader question across the NEM around how does open access operate in the broader NEM? Is the assumption that investment will only occur inside reses or will there continue will we continue to operate a market where there are opportunities for investment and optimization of existing grid and existing resources? across the NEM, not just within reses. And that's really the issue we're having to address here. So whilst um, the approach by, on the part of the New South Wales government, we strongly support, and I think the, the uh, renewables industry more broadly has strongly supported, it doesn't resolve the full question, which is access in the broader NEM, uh, and it, nor does it fully resolve the question of how do you manage congestion between a res and back to a load centre, you know, back to where, where the products ultimately consumed by consumers. So there's still that question that can really only be resolved through whole of market reform. And that's why as an investor body, we're so strongly focused on it, why we've put forward an alternative that, um, that we believe is uh, going to give that level of certainty and predictability around revenues that investors are looking for, um, and which allows for uh, a much clearer and more certain locational investment um, uh, signal that we really fundamentally need to optimise the utilisation of transmission in the NEM as a whole. Hmm. Let's get on to the capacity markets then, because um, as you said at the start of this interview, um, the proposal put forward by the ESB seems to be tilted heavily in favour of existing thermal generators, which really very, very few people want, apart from the owners of a couple of thermal generators, um, of course. Um, there, just a, there does seem to be a push, though, that, um, that we should kind of split the what they're concerned about. One is how do you bring in new capacity 
and you probably need to de de define a mechanism which focuses on flexibility and zero emissions and, and all of that. And then how do you manage the exit of coal? Because we're expecting the exit to happen quite pretty dramatically, but it needs to be sort of coordinated and we're yes. not leaving us short. So is there, are you seeing that, I mean, is that what you guys support? I mean, even Origin, I think, and, and, and some other big um, um, sort of you know, legacy utilities, if that's where to describe them, seem to be um, supportive of this idea. How exactly that looks, I'm not really too sure. Is that what you guys are supporting? Yes, so we support uh, the, the concept of some form of capacity mechanism in the national electricity market. And the reason we do that, we see that as important in a 100% or approaching 100% variable renewable energy market. Um, rewarding capacity and recognising the services and the necessity of it in maintaining stability, security of system is very important and we, and we recognise the need for it. But we don't, we don't support the current proposed model uh, put forward by the ESB, firstly because, to your point, the ESB proposes this mechanism both to manage coal exit as well as to incentivise new investment. And the reality is it, neither, it does neither of those things particularly well. Um, even, if, even if coal receives capacity payments, um, the level of penalties around um, not actually physically showing up when required, even if contracted to do so, is so low as to make it, make it laughable. Um, and uh, equally, though, coal gets those payments to the detriment of new investment. So we support um, the concept and we've, we've actively joined with others in advocating for uh, a separation of these two questions. We've said that bilateral discussion on the point of coal uh, exit and negotiated contracts for exit um, make a lot of sense and that should be dealt with outside of the capacity market approach. Um, the only point we'd make around that is that there should be transparency around those agreements. Uh, we need to know what's agreed, when the proposed closure date is, uh, any other conditions, so that the market is properly informed about when that generator is going to leave, because that's an important signal, price signal in itself. Um, and then on the... Yeah, I, guess, I guess what you I guess what you're referring to then is like the closure of your lawn. We actually know the date of that. That's kind of been brought forward by to 2028, or maybe in reality it was actually sort of put back to 2028. We don't really know what was going on in the minds of the owner, but we know nothing about the agreement struck with the Victorian government. Yeah, and we think a level of transparency transparency is important. We recognise that you know there will necessarily be elements of any contractual agreement between a government and a private party that may need to be confidential. But some of those key parameters should be public, so that the market can operate in a in a in a rational way and in an informed way, and that investment is brought on when it needs to be brought on. Um, on the issue of the capacity market itself. Uh, we don't support the proposed uh, model put forward by the ESB, but we do think that there are a range of other options that have been put on the table by industry. Um, for example, the idea of a capacity reserve is one that, that does warrant further consideration. Um, and those types of approaches should be front and centre of the ESB's thinking. So I think um, all of this could be quite radically reshaped, I must say, if um, we do see an environmental objective in the NEM because um, that will force the ESB to adjust its capacity propo market proposal. And in any event, I think the ESB needs to get on the same page as ministers. 
uh, ministers want to incentivise new investment. At the moment, their proposal does not achieve that. Mm, absolutely. It's, um, uh, it, this, this, this environmental objective really can be quite a game changer, couldn't it, um, to, to the way that the whole grid is managed and planned and, and thought about? Look, I think it can. I mean, I know some people have always considered it a bit of a symbolic act, but it has real practical uh, implications uh, that are beneficial to accelerating investment, that are beneficial to accelerating transmission development, that are beneficial to realising more investment. And that's clearly what Minister Bowen and the state ministers want to see. They want to see more investment. Um, so let's design the market properly to get that investment, um, not, not get stuck with with old, old models and, and old assumptions. Yeah, yeah. Now you talk um, in the um, in the release that you've put out to the market about um, the results of your survey, and you make this claim that this could be. I mean, we're obviously in the middle of an, uh, an extraordinary energy crisis, partly driven by international trends and sort of commodity price rises, but one suspects also by the behaviour of participants in the industry here. Why do you think, or how do you think, that this could be the last energy crisis? Well, to be fair, Giles, what, what we said was if Australia establishes a sound framework to become self-sufficient uh, on our vast uh, clean energy resources, this could be the last energy crisis that Australia faces or wouldn't sure that. So, you know, th the message really is that um, we can make this future a reality. Uh, investment is willing to enable that if these issues around congestion and revenue certainty and around alignment of market design with uh, the emissions reduction objective the Australian government has are, are, are realised, uh, then we can get there. So this could be the last time that we have to face this type of dilemma, but we have to design the market to give investors the level of certainty and predictability they need and that's both in the headline figures, and those are clearly heading in the right direction, those big headline movements, but then also in the detail of the market design. So we would be saying to ministers, we would encourage you and we want to work with you to get into the nitty gritty of the practicalities of what different market design options look like, whether or not they genuinely incentivize investment or whether they simply reinforce existing old models of the market operating and the, the the power of the of the incumbents and that's mm. something we need to change so that's the challenge i think for mm. governments as a whole move uh, the headline movements massive shift in direction and sentiment and it's all for the good uh, but now it's down to the the detailed work of how the market rules operate and we need ministers and their departments to be closely engaged in that and and really making clear to the ESB their expectations in that regard. So basically it could be the last energy crisis because in fact we've moved away from fossil fuels and we've moved away from that sort of being held to ransom by international commodity prices and uh, and other actions. That's clearly the, that's clearly what, where we need to get to and I, I think I don't think there's any disagreement around that but it's it's fundamentally about how do we operationalise that ambition? Uh, and it's much more than, than just the headline movements. The headline movement's so very, very important. And the new government is to be encouraged for the work they've done in this regard. Um, but uh, we really need to see now their close engagement in these issues of market design and rules 
which whilst very esoteric are material in whether or not investors make the commitments that uh, we need them to make. And, and just one final question. I mean, your, your survey also points to sort of a very small amount of sort of um, investment um, planning. Um, I would have thought from the people that you've mentioned as members of your group that they've got huge pipelines in the um, coming down the track. But uh, what are they saying then that there's actually no immediate um, desire to invest be, uh, until they get those design rules, the, the, the rule design resolved? Yeah, so I think we need to be really clear and, and shift the debate beyond the size of the pipeline. The pipeline, the development pipeline is enormous and more than sufficient to realise the step change scenario or even the hydrogen superpower scenario. So, you know, there's no, no, diff, no problem with the development pipeline. The problem is with the conversion rate from development pipeline to committed projects um, that uh, are bankable, investable and, and where a a positive investment decision has been made. Um, we've been surveying our members now for the last year. Um, the number of new transactions that we've seen, I can count on one hand in terms of number of projects during that time. Um, and that's a very, very low conversion rate. And then when you exclude um, the secondary transactions, that is existing projects just being sold from one party to another, you know, so no actual new additional capacity coming into the market, the number's even lower. So um, this points to the problems that investors face around uh, being able to make an investment decision with a high level of confidence that they are not going to face significant curtailment due to constraint and that that's going to impact on their revenues over the life of a project or that they're going to be able to be, able to be connected in a timely manner uh, and there's going to be sufficient capacity in the network. So these are the types of issues that are material to whether or not an investment decision proceeds. And uh, we, these, this is the reason why we must focus on these issues and get them right, because the headline objectives uh, are one thing, but the level of detail that makes the investment feasible is another. And we need to have both to get, that, get this transformation well and truly back on track. Well, Simon Corbell, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. And let's hope that we see the environment, environmental objective back in, um, or the environment back into the um, um, electricity, national electricity objective um, pretty soon. What a great step that would be, Giles. Thanks very much for having me. And that was Simon Corbell, the CEO of the Clean Energy Investors Group. Um, David, uh, I was particularly fascinated um, by this talk of the uh, environmental objective being put back into the national electricity um, objective. I mean, look, this was the thing that was sort of scandalously and rather unexplained um, taken out by the Howard government as the NEM rules were sort of put together, you know, more than two decades ago. Um, and they basically hampered and stymied a lot of very, far, you know, you know <laughs> important decisions, be it sort of regulatory or on the regulator, regulatory investment test and all sorts of other things. So I think this is going to be a big step forward if it does happen next week as advertised. Yes, indeed. It will be uh, very helpful in considering all the rules that are made going forward uh, by the AEMC, notwithstanding that the ISP, the Integrated System Plan that AEMO models to, takes into account the state carbon objectives, but uh, things like the New South Wales uh, Renewable Roadmap, which is another big thing that progressed this, this week, uh, even though there is an underlying sharp reduction in carbon, it's not an explicit objective. 
And so having it in the national rules, I think, will be a very important uh, uh, part of the national framework. And that will be a fantastic effort by the states if they can get that uh, achieved. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, look, we'll, we'll see that, that. That's a really a major step forward. Um, you mentioned New South Wales, the infrastructure roadmap. They held a webinar earlier this week. I think you were listening as well as myself. What were your impressions of it? It seems to me that they're sort of trying very, very hard to sort of create something which is really interesting, um, has a reasonable amount of flexibility, um, but I guess um, still some refinements to make. Well, it's um it's the model that we're going to use. I hope. I suspect Queensland may do it differently, but um, it, New South Wales working hard. The plan's gone up from three gigawatts to five gigawatts. Uh, you know, within the Arana renewable energy zone. One of the things that you see from the ISP is that the renewable energy is going to get concentrated by and large, not completely, but if you. The Arana zone, the New England zone and Darling Downs are going to be, you know, something like 40 or 50 percent of the total renewable energy that's produced. And so getting the right model for how to build it out is important. Uh, Look, let's wait and see until the tenders come in. There's a few other things going on uh, this week that are worth talking about as well. Uh, We saw, for instance, um, uh, Neoin making good money out of its batteries. And more importantly, I think, in the quarterly energy dynamics, which everyone gets very excited about, even though you and I, Giles, and all of our listeners have been talking about the things they talk about for about two months before the AMO gets around to reporting them. uh, Nevertheless, the fact that uh, batteries were making in the June quarter more money out of um, uh, 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 storage, the sort of uh, rather than FCAS, I think is a big sign of the progress that's been made in the storage economy. Yes. Now, they would make a lot of money out of storage um, out of um, in the in volatile markets. Do we have to have really expensive and high-priced markets for that to work, though? No, not at all. In fact, uh, you know, in the, uh, the other thing that uh, we have been banging on about here time and time again uh, is that we saw a big sharp drop this week uh, all of a sudden in futures prices, in gas prices and in spot market prices. Now, there are a couple of theories about why that occurred. One theory is it was the ACCC sort of uh, hammering the gas producers and all of a sudden they suddenly capitulated. Another theory is that we've just had some the start of spring, frankly. The, the weather has been warmer, so less electricity demand for heating, uh, lots more solar, uh, very strong wind production, fantastic records coming out all over the place. Um, uh, and 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 those things contribute to much lower, and we're just that we're going to see more of that. And also, I think the flooding's moving out of the coal mines to some extent, and so coal there's a bit more coal around, uh, and all of a sudden we don't need as much gas for gas generation, so the spot price drops away a little bit. And uh, mm. you know, low the point is, Giles, low prices or zero or negative prices are going to be just as good for batteries uh, as high prices because they'll be able to buy the stuff very cheaply. Well, look, that's true. Yes, look, I had a couple of utilities ring me up and say, Giles, 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 you've got to understand. It's all these very factors that you just mentioned, David. But I can't help thinking that there's a large part of the hand in the cookie jar um, moment because despite all those factors, which were probably all quite valid that you mentioned, sort of coal plants coming back online, sort of less demand for gas, warm winter, really good strong wind conditions and things like that, um, don't all, um, what we saw was a big price drop really on a single day. And um, yes, I mean, they could have justified it with all those different things, but um, I still think that uh, there's a large amount of, um, oh shit, we've, I think we've gone a bit too far on this. Let's all dial back a bit because um, um, we're getting shouted out about um, social license by the government and etc. So 
Interesting stuff. Now, um, David, you hosted a um, Sydney Energy... The Australian um, Institute, Institute of Energy, which I'd encourage any listeners to join. It's a, a, a very low-cost uh, uh, way to join uh, um, a group of people that like to talk about the energy markets and hold forums and, uh, you know, actually socialise. We all stand around pretty much like sundowners afterwards, and this one was hosted by KPMG. Uh, very kindly and occasionally we get hosted by some of uh, the lawyers that uh, like to see the business opportunities and look a lot of wonderful people turn up who know an awful lot of stuff but then you know if you're chatting around over a beer you can learn a heck of a lot uh, and today though on the formal part of the seminar I learnt that um, offshore wind there's a tons and tons of big in uh, international investment interest in line with what we um, we had on the podcast last week and um uh, OceanX, which is um, uh, founded by the same guy that founded uh, Star of the South, the most progressed wind farm, and uh, OceanX wants to do floating offshore wind off New South Wales, which, um, believe me, won't won't be happening next year, but you've got to start somewhere. They're expecting <laughs> some more um, uh, investment interest to, to materialise and show up in dollars, you know, and also the approval process for the... Um, uh, that's required from the federal government uh, is is actually all that's progressing at, 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 at a good and the Victorian and New South Wales governments all progressing fairly steadily. Well, that's a good sign. That's a good sign. Um, David, I don't know whether we've got anything else to add. Um, I think we had a whole list of things at the start of the podcast and I think we've actually got through them all unless I'm mistaken. But um, um, unless you can think of anything very, very quickly, I'll count to one, two, three, four, five. No, no Giles, um, all that, I think <laughs> just remains for us to, think, to, to, to thank the sponsors. Uh, before your voice breaks, absolutely. Yes, of course, I'm going to thank our sponsors, um, Pylon and Evergen, um, and of course, uh, Jet Charge uh, with the new middle ad. Um, thanks to you, David. Thanks to Simon for joining us, Simon Corbell for joining us um, with a really, really interesting interview and great perspective on the challenges in the um, market for investors. And we'll be back again with another podcast around this time next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.